0: If you're new and visiting us this morning, welcome. My name's Brendan, one of the pastors here. Uh, If you are visiting, you're our guest. We would love to meet you and help you feel part of the family here. Uh, We are in the middle, and when I say in the middle, I mean close to being in the middle uh, of an epic, awesome series on the book of Exodus, you might have guessed, uh, from behind me. Uh, If you do have a Bible, uh, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's going to be on the screen, or you can grab a Bible from our welcome desk. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. Uh, We're looking this morning at Exodus chapter 15. And our passage this morning, Exodus chapter 15, is different from what we've been seeing so far, because this morning, uh, our passage is a song. A song. So why don't you open up God's Word and I'm going to read and then pray for us as we get stuck in. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse And his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the Earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Look, God, this morning we come as your people before your throne And we want to listen to you. So, Lord, I pray in and through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same power that divided the seas, would you soften our hearts and help us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we spent about 30 minutes singing at the start of the service today. Four songs, about 30 minutes of time. And I want to ask us a question this morning. Have you ever paused and wondered why? You know, maybe you've grown up in church and singing, it's kind of just that thing that we do. And so for you, Maybe when it comes to singing, you'd probably rather not. And so you're a little bit distracted, you probably come in late, you know, sort of test how many songs you can kind of avoid. Maybe you come in with a coffee in the hand and you're sort of looking at the words, down at the coffee, have a little sip, looking around, and kind of pleased when it's sort of proceeding seem to come to an end. Maybe you even look for reasons to check on the kids or you find yourself just kind of quickly on your phone and scrolling through your feed. Why do we sing? Why do we do it? Maybe you're new to church and this whole thing is kind of all new and so you come and you experience the singing and you think it's kind of nice but it's also kind of a little bit confusing. I mean, you'll sing along to the AFL or, you know, to your team, when you go to watch your sports team play or on the radio, that's kind of enjoyable, but, you know, 150, 200 people in a room, and it's not really a performance, and it's kind of just a bit, like, weird, but why, why, why do we do it? Why do we sing? Well, this morning, we're going to explore why we sing by pausing to look at why they sang. Uh, if you're a note-taker this morning... I've entitled uh, this message, The Song of the Redeemed. And really, I've got three points this morning, points that are kind of reasons, reasons as to why Israel and therefore we ought to sing. But one real hope for us, one real simple message uh, that I believe this passage teaches us, and that is that joyful, wholehearted worship is the appropriate response to miraculous rescue. Joyful, wholehearted, worship, singing is the appropriate response to miraculous rescue. Well, before we get to our first uh, point this morning as we uh, look at this text, uh, I think we need to sort of look at a little bit about the context to our passage to catch up on the story. You know, we won't understand what this song is all about, until we get ourselves into the shoes of these Israelites. And I want us to kind of pause and kind of imagine the scene as they saw it and to imagine how we'd feel if we were there. You know, they had spent 430 years as slaves. That's for us as if we'd been slaves since 1589. Beyond remembering and finally god had delivered his people you know after the passover and pharaoh relents and he lets his people go and they travel out after that final plague which killed the firstborn of every person and animal in egypt and they take with them the bones of joseph a beautiful sign of the faithfulness of god for Moses had believed that God would one day redeem his people, and he had asked that his bones would be carried out when the people were set free. And here they are, carrying those bones out, a beautiful sign of God's faithfulness. And God reveals to Moses a secret plan not to overwhel- overwhelm his people. Instead of going the direct route to the north, uh, where they could have directly gone to the promised land, where they would have been... God knew, frightened by the Philistines, he instead sends them south and he guides them with his presence, with fire at night and a cloud by day. God then instructs them, having headed south in the opposite direction, to turn back. And as they turn back, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Because God is determined to get glory over him. And as a result, Pharaoh and 600 chosen chariots and all of his other chariots with officers pursue them. And Israel is panicked. Their backs are against the ocean. Pharaoh with his armies are coming. They are trapped. And they begin to panic and say, have you brought us out this way simply that we would die? Better we stayed in Egypt. And God sends an angel that moves the pillar of cloud to between Pharaoh and his army and the people of God. And God instructs Moses to stretch out his hand over the ocean. And God sends a strong east wind that divides the sea. And they pass through on dry land a wall of water on their right, and a wall of water on their left. But the Egyptian army follows. And you can imagine as the Israelites stand on the shore of the sea, watching the Egyptian army come through, the panic beginning to rise again. And Moses stretches out his hand once more, and the sea returns The army is drowned, and after some time, even bodies begin to wash up on the shore. It's an amazing act of deliverance by Yahweh. He demonstrated his power, he demonstrated his glory, he demonstrated his faithfulness, he demonstrated his sovereignty. And how did they respond? They erupt into song. You know, Moses leads the whole nation into song, a song that would be sung for generations to come. You know, you can imagine the choir standing on the shore of the sea, some 2 million people singing God's praises. Some of them, I'm sure, would have been excellent singers. Some of them undoubtedly Not-so-great singers. The Riley Springs of the world. (laughs) But nonetheless, wholehearted in worship, singing praises to God, all alike, two million voices singing praise. It's such an important moment that actually the story is told twice. First in prose, and again in poetry, in a song. You know, Victor Hamilton helpfully explains it this way. He says in his excellent commentary, the purpose of prose account is narration. The purpose of the poetic account is celebration. Exodus 14 tells the old, old story while Exodus 15 sings the old, old story. You walk or march in chapter 14. You dance in chapter 15. Chapter 14 focuses on what God has done. Chapter 15 focuses on our appropriate response to what God has done. There is holy hush in chapter 14. You sing fortissimo in chapter 15. And why not? God wipes away all fears after he's wiped out the Egyptians. In chapter 14, you're on the move. In chapter 15, you're standing on the seashore. You're holding your breath in chapter 14. Chapter 15 is the calm after the storm. Chapter 14 highlights the dry ground. In chapter 15, there's not a dry eye. That's what this passage this morning is all about, the appropriate response to God's deliverance. But what specifically caused them to erupt into song? You know, this morning we don't have time to examine every verse. It's too big a passage. But there's three kind of prominent themes that form three prominent reasons why they sang, reasons that will form our points this morning and reasons that we're going to turn and look at now with reason number one. And that is because they were in awe of God. Why don't you read with me again verse 1? Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has Triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea i 'll sing to Yahweh, why? Because he has triumphed gloriously, or perhaps even better. He is highly exalted it 's a song to the Lord who is above every enemy. The horse and the chariot rider he has thrown them all. Into the sea. We read on. Verse 2 The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is my strength, the people sing. He is the one who sustains me. Each and every day, they sing. Yahweh is my song. He's the delight of my heart. He's the thing that I'm constantly singing about. All the day long. You know, I was thinking about this idea of having a song throughout the day, and uh, one thing came to my mind, and uh, that is that if you've ever been in the office with Dave Taylor, uh, you'll realize working closely with this brother, it's a matter of time be- before you become the focus of a song. Uh, the songs tend to go a little bit something like this: Oh, Brandy Brand, Brand, Brandy, Brand, Brand, Brand. Brandy, Brandan. Patrick, patty pat, 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 And it's a little bit irritating, but really funny and sweet, because you know that the brother's just thinking about you. You know, he's got you on his heart, you're his song. And he just felt it turned into an actual song. But joking aside, this is what the people of Israel are saying. The Lord is my song. Here's what I sing about all the day long. And they're proclaiming that God is their sustenance and their delight. Keep reading with me. Verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is a man of war. He's a warrior. That word is for someone who fights in hand-to-hand combat. It's an image of what God is like. He fights their battles for them. They didn't fire a single shot in this war. You know, if you're new to the Bible... This isn't the only title of God. Uh, God is elsewhere described as a father and a husband, a king, tender and compassionate, faithful, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, but also as a man of war. You know, if you knew him only as a man of war, you'd have a big problem. But if you leave out that God is a man of war you also have a big problem. Because if we forget that God is a God of justice, that he fights his enemies, that he will one day work to quash all evil, if we forget that he's a man of war, we won't be able to understand the cross. The cross exists because God is a man of war. Pouring out wrath to deliver his people from evil. The difference is that at the cross we see that the evil rests with us. When you keep reading with me, verse 11, "Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome, in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Twice it's repeated. Who is like you? God is completely unique. There is no one like Him. You know, in the Bible, this idea of God being unique is called the holiness of God. If you imagine, it's something like the solar system that we live in. If God was the solar system, in the solar system, He would be like the sun right at the center with everything revolving around him completely unique and different from everything else in our solar system set apart powerful light radiating everywhere a burning ball of fire unique set apart holy you know, Desmond Alexander, in his commentary, he translates uh, this verse this way. He says, who is like you, superior in holiness, awesome, praiseworthy, doing the extraordinary. You know, it was a time in history when this was written that people worshipped thousands of different gods. Each location had its own specific god or gods which Local people tried to please, like for instance when they're in Egypt, the expectation was if you travel to a different place, you were expected to try and please the God who lives there. But God is completely different from all the other false gods in that He's everywhere, in that He's limitless in power, limitless in might, limitless in glory and worthy of praise. You know, 1,500 years on, Uh, In the 21st, or 3,500 years on, sorry, in the 21st century in Sydney, you know, the gods may have changed, but this song stands true. In 21st century Sydney, our gods are money and career and relationships and food and leisure and approval and power and children and possessions. Different gods, and yet still the same, who is like our God? No one. None of the false gods compare. And the Israelites erupt into song because they saw that God and they were in awe of Him. Well, here's the pressing question for us this morning, church. What are we in awe of this morning? Are we in awe of God? Or are we in awe of our circumstances? The easy answer to that question is, wherever your thoughts go, when you daydream or whatever you're most afraid of when you have nightmares, that's what you're in awe of. And sometimes it's easy to be in awe of colleagues and what they think of us, or our health situation, or kids, or bills, or holidays, or exams. And if this morning you're struggling to sing, maybe it's because something else has captured your awe. Well, that's the first reason why they sang, because they're in awe of God. But not just that. The second reason we see in this passage is because God miraculously delivered them from evil. Why don't you keep reading uh, verse 4 through to 6? It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his, and his host... He cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You know, this is a song that at its heart celebrates God drowning the Egyptians. Seven times it's repeated in the song that the Egyptians were thrown into the sea, cast into the sea, sunk in the Red Sea, covered by floods, sunk like stone, covered by the sea, sunk like lead. Seven times it's repeated in this, in this song. These guys were the elite SAS of the Egyptian military, chariots with chosen officers. And this aspect of the song is pretty uncomfortable to Western ears. It feels uncomfortable to kind of celebrate someone being killed, more a whole army of people being killed. But this reality is the central celebration of the song. God has killed their enemies. And to understand why that's the case, we need to keep reading. Why don't you read with me the next verse, verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty... You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. You see, this isn't a song that is primarily about God destroying Israel's enemies. God is destroying his own enemies. You overthrow your adversaries, Moses says. You see, Pharaoh and his army were part of a cruel regime. A cruel regime that had committed genocide, murdering thousands of children, who had enslaved a whole nation of people, who had opposed God continuously. You know, Exodus 5 2, it says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. This song celebrates. The wrath of God as he delivers his people and exacts judgment on evil. Read with me the next verse, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. It was as easy for Yahweh as clearing a nostril. The Egyptians seemingly had their own song as they rode into battle. Assured foolishly that victory was theirs. Read with me verses 9 and 10. It says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Simply the wind, better, your breath blows and they are destroyed this song is a celebration of god's victory against evil you see god's wrath is different from ours god doesn't just lose his temper he doesn't fly off into a rage like i sometimes do he doesn't hold grudges he doesn't lash out randomly he's patient and he's measured and he's just. He had been patient with Israel for 430 years. He had warned them with 10 plagues. And even after all of this, chasing them down, they, they were chasing them down to take them back into slavery. It's not one strike and you're out with God. He is patient. He is measured. And he is just. And so They celebrate. You know, Kevin DeYoung uh, comments on this very uh, verse, uh, and he says the following. It's so helpful. He says, It's amazing how so many people today love to talk about justice, but don't like the idea of God's wrath. What is the wrath of God except His justice realized in real life? God cannot let sin go unpunished. To turn a blind eye to sin would be to deny His very nature. So many of us have no problem wanting swift and severe justice when it comes to criminals, bad referees, or people who hurt us or make our lives difficult. We want to scream out to someone in control. We want to yell, don't you see what's happening? You can't just let that go. You have to do something. How much more so with God as he looks down from heaven upon all the sin, all the wickedness, and unrighteousness on the earth. Hear this. If we have a problem with the wrath of God, it is because we have underestimated God's majesty and overestimated our goodness. Isn't that right? If we've got a problem with the wrath of God, it's because we've underestimated the majesty, the glory of God, and we've overestimated our own goodness. Moses and all of Israel saw that God had miraculously delivered them from evil by judging the Egyptians, and so they erupt into song. But here's the problem. On the North Shore, we like to think we're good people. We're hard-working people, highly educated people, law-abiding people, church-going if you're here this morning, church-going people, tax-paying, but with hearts... That are often largely cold towards God. And here's the fruit of this: that if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, it's easy to believe you are an easy save. The kind of low-lying fruit of salvation. You know the fruit that sits down low, it's easy to pick. The kind of the, the golf ball near the hole. Of salvation, God just had to tap 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 you in. You're kind of almost already there. But the truth is that your salvation was even more miraculous than that of the Israelites. The King of Glory humbled himself for your sake become a man. The Holy Spirit caused the eternal divine Son to become a child in Mary's womb for your sake. He was born into squalor for you. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God and love for man because we failed to live it. And he suffered in agony, enduring the wrath of God in full on the cross for our sake. And he rose in victory and ascended into glory and all for us. You know, church, before I came to know Christ... I was no easy save. Part of me doesn't want you to know me. But part of me does. Because I was an arrogant fool. And yet he was incredibly kind. He worked an amazing miracle of grace in my life. He sent His Holy Spirit into my heart and opened my eyes to see the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Do you remember this morning the way God miraculously delivered you from evil? Do you remember the time when you were far from God and sin held you captive? Do you remember the joy you first felt when you came for the very first time to see the glory of Jesus? Well, that's something that's worth singing about. That's something that has only one right response and that is joyful wholehearted worship. And the Israelites sang because they had seen his miraculous deliverance. That's our second Reason, our third reason, final reason, is that they sang because God had given them hope for the future. You see, verses 3 through to 16, um, in your translation, in ESV, it uses a lot of past tenses. And that's actually grammatically correct, but probably not the most helpful because what's written here. Is actually a prophecy about the future and so the niv is perhaps a bit more helpful when it uses future tense this will happen in the future I'll dive right in with me and read verse 13 it says this you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have or you will you have redeemed sorry you have or you will guide them by your strength to your holy abode. God has redeemed his people. He's delivered them from their oppressors. And now they're singing filled with confidence that he will continue to lead and guide them. That word their abode, it's actually a shepherding word. It probably refers to something like a pasture or a meadow. And so what they're singing about, they're singing God like a shepherd will guide them to the pasture or to the meadow that he set apart. He'll guide them to the promised land. Let's keep reading verses 14 through to 16. It says, The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Now will the chiefs of Edom be dismayed. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They will be still like stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. till the people pass by whom you have purchased. All the surrounding nations will hear about what God has done in Egypt at the Red Sea. And they will wilt away in fear. They will tremble at the thought. And there will be another Passover... But this time, a parade. A parade of God's people passing by the nations. Keep reading with me verses 17 and 18. It says, You will bring them in and plant them on your, holy, on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O God, which your hands have established. And the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord's going to take them to a mountain a special place where he will dwell a dwelling place that god will make himself for them where he will reign as a king forever you know so easy to pass over these words you know they almost sound so familiar to us and yet nothing like this had ever been written in god's word before God is promising something miraculous here to them. He's promising that he would lead them into a place where he will dwell and reign forever. You see, God would lead them into his promised land some 40 years later. But it would be hundreds of years more before the final part of the pro- promised land would be taken by King David, and that is Jerusalem. On Mount Zion in Jerusalem, David... David's son Solomon would build a temple as God had promised to David. And there, David's throne would be established forever. Uh, Nathan the prophet uh, says the following to David. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You know, this song is so much more than just the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. It's a song of hope. It's a prophetic song that points to the eternal reign of God on the throne of David. It's a song that ultimately finds its fulfillment in the coming of the eternal King Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus is not dead. He's risen and he's coming again. And In his return, he will take his throne once more on the earth. God's plan has always been to build a glorious city, to defeat his enemies once and for all, and to dwell in unity once more with his people. And on that day when Jesus has returned, and God dwells again with his people, do you know what song we will sing? This song. The Song of Moses. Why don't you turn with me to Revelation 15, or you can see it up on the screen. Verse 2. And the Apostle John writes the following in Revelation 15. He says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast, That's a symbol of the enemies of God. And its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The people of God in our passage, filled with awe, will celebrate his righteous acts and Miraculous deliverance, along with the saints throughout the ages, forever. Church, can you see this morning the glorious future that is yours in Christ? You know, if you listen to the news, you might be tempted to think that the world is on the brink of falling apart. With global warming and natural disasters, political division, pollution, war, persecution... The result is that even as Christians, we can live these anxious lives as though we need to somehow try and create some sort of security for ourselves, maybe through prosperity and investments. Sometimes we can be tempted to believe that this life is all there is and we feel like we're going to miss out on stuff, so we need to travel the world and make sure our kids can have every possible experience before it all disappears. But as Christians, we don't need to fear because we know what the future holds. Jesus is coming. He will take his throne. He will reign forever. And that's something that's worth singing about. Well, in summary, God had spectacularly delivered his people from the Egyptians. And so how did they respond? Some two million people broke out into song by the shore of the sea. And I'd ought to have been there. Great singers, not so great singers, but all together in one mighty chorus. Why? Because they were in awe of God. Because they had been delivered from evil. Because God had given them hope for the future. They sang because joyful, wholehearted worship is the appropriate response to a miraculous rescue. Well, church, we're actually going to now respond to this in the only appropriate way, which is to sing with everything we've got. But before we do that, when I close in praying as the band comes up, Lord God, this morning, I want to thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture, your word to us. And Lord, you know this morning that we're prone to forget why we sing. We're prone to forget how awesome and amazing you are. We're prone to forget the miraculous deliverance you have wrought in each and every one of our lives. And we're prone to forget the glorious future we have with you, reigning and singing praise to you for all eternity. Lord Jesus, this morning as we gather to your people, Lord, help us to see what this moment is rightly, Lord. Help us to gather as your people with hearts filled with faith and worship you as you alone deserve. To worship you with a song that is even more joyful than the song they sang on that day. Because how worthy of praise is your Son, our Lord Jesus, who was crucified who died more, is risen and dwells with us and all of it for the praise of your glorious name in whom we pray, amen.